Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. People often avoid the topic of mortality and how their affairs should be managed following their death. Nearly three years ago, the news that music legend Prince died without a will served as a wake-up call for many Minnesotans. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota family social science professor Marlene Stum discusses the estate planning process and the importance of preparing in advance for end-of-life decisions. Professor Stum, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you for having me. When should someone start thinking about creating a will and making end-of-life decisions? Well, everyone who's 18 and older has the right to do so, uh, to to really uh, address the issues around uh, death and dying and what would happen if they didn't have the ability to make their own decisions. So anybody that's an adult is really... Um, in line to think about uh, what should happen to their things and who they want to decide. Do we know how common it is for someone in Minnesota to die intestate, that is, without having a will or estate plan? As far as I know, I, I don't know any Minnesota-specific data. So I could tell you that nationwide we have some glimpses into that. Uh, the American Bar Association, for example, has a, a survey that they say 50% die without a will or some kind of estate plan. I think uh, that's probably a, a fair guess that maybe half of the people. Obviously, if you're looking at the odds of that go up, I think, with age. And if you're looking at younger folks, it goes down. So... That's a ballpark estimate. So we have a lot of work to do. Why do people avoid estate planning? Oh, there's a long list. I think probably procrastination is the biggest reason. People have good intentions. They know it's important, but that's where, you know, I don't know where to start. I don't know how complicated it's going to be. I'm worried about family conflicts. I don't know how much an attorney costs, uh, and the list goes kind of on from there. So I think procrastination is a big piece of it. Another reason of, for avoidance is the fact that we don't talk about death and dying very well or very much in families and in society. So it's a tough subject to bring up. And that, again, is enough of a, a roadblock, I think, for many people to put it on the back burner. Well, how should someone start the estate planning process? Should they talk to family first, or should they consult with an attorney first? There's not any magical formulas, but I would suggest that it's important to do some homework first, meaning really think through what it is you have, uh, whether it's you know money, property, personal possessions. Think about, you know, take an inventory, I guess, of your, your own assets and those in your with family members. We can talk perhaps later about some specific resources, but there's some really good resources that you can get just to get familiar with basic terms. What questions are you going to be asked when if you visit an attorney? There's a lot of homework you can do in advance that'll get you started and ultimately could save you money once you do see that attorney, if you do. And there's also some things that you can do on your own. For example, the University of Minnesota Extension has a healthcare directive toolkit that is available for free and, and really will walk you through completing that document. So 
I'm really saying there's some things that you can do on your own to get started that are fairly user-friendly. And then from there, you'll probably get a sense of how far you need to go to uh, get some professional advice. When we talk about estate planning and end-of-life decisions, there are multiple documents that are involved in this process. Can you give us sort of an overview of the different types of documents a person should expect to encounter during the estate planning process? Yes. And, you know, most people have heard of a will and may be confused about what that is, but basically I'll give you some very general definitions. So a will is important to think about, again, for anybody who who is 18 and older, has some kind of financial assets or any kind of possessions. Uh, It really allows you to make decisions about who you want to get what and who you want to make decisions. So it's, um, I think a lot of people hear about that when they have kids. They're really um, strongly advised to make decisions about if something happened to both parents, then who would they nominate as a guardian for those kids? So a will allows you basically to make decisions about your property and who you want to make decisions. And most people have heard of a trust, perhaps. It's a different kind of planning tool. It's not for everybody, and it basically allows you to move your assets into a trust and have someone manage that trust. And there's many variations of that, of what it looks like and who it's for and what it can accomplish. So understanding the difference between a will and a trust is pretty important and basic. Another document that you'll probably have heard of is called a power of attorney for finances. And that document, we're really talking about planning for the chance that you may not have the decision-making capacity to make your own decisions. So in this case, we're talking about what if I can't write my own checks or do my own investments? Who's going to make those kinds of decisions? So it allows you to name an agent or an attorney, in fact, someone who you trust to make those decisions and then, then has the right and the power to carry out your decisions. So that's a pretty common document. Again, it's preparing for the chance that you won't have capacity. A couple more um, that you're going to hear. So we've got wills, you've got a trust, you have a power of attorney for finances. You'll also be asked to really think about beneficiary forms. Those forms that you get if you have a, a life insurance policy or some kind of pension plan or some other kind of a benefit and those kinds of benefits can be transferred to someone on your death. So if you want to have named a beneficiary that you want to get those things. So that's another piece of it is having that in place. And another piece is having a healthcare directive. Healthcare directives, again, are documents that really put in writing your wishes about what should happen to your healthcare if and end-of-life decisions if you can't make decisions for yourself. Probably attached to that list, most people would say you also need to think about funeral plans and have those wishes in writing. So that may feel like an onerous list, but basically you're talking about uh, who's going to, again, your your property, your assets, your own health care in the event that you die uh, or when you die and if you don't have capacity to make decisions. 
We're talking with Marlene Stum. She's a professor in the Department of Family Social Science at the University of Minnesota. She wrote a paper for the U of M's extension program titled Estate Planning Matters, Lessons from the Unexpected Death of Prince. Professor, as you mentioned earlier, death is a very uncomfortable subject for most people. So how should loved ones bring up the subject of -of end-of-life decision-making with other family members? I think, uh, first of all, to not assume that it's really difficult for everyone. I I deal a lot with elders and older adults and topics that have a lot to do with death and dying, so I may just be immune to it. But I also know that for many older people, it's just part of life. It is really uh, people, good friends and family are dying every day, and so it's not that taboo topic that I think it might be for perhaps younger folks. So I think it's, it is difficult. It's never easy to think about the losses that may be involved of a parent or, or anybody. But I think one of the, the good things perhaps to come of Prince's unexpected death and apparently no estate planning is that it's a prime example. It's a, it is a great teachable moment here to say, so what if? What if you died suddenly? Uh, what's in place? in your case, and who knows about it, and use those current events to really bring up the topic. Another clue, I guess I would say, is be really clear about your motives. Why is it that you want to bring this topic up? What is it that you're after? And I think for many, um, I'll speak from the perspective of an adult child, they really want to know someone's wishes so that they're able to carry them out. They don't have to guess. They don't have to feel guilty because they didn't know. They know what to do. It sure makes losing a parent easier if you have, you know, exactly where to go to that folder where all the documents are or at least who to contact. It really makes it easier for your survivors. So be clear about your motives. Be able to tell your parent why you're bringing up the topic as opposed to them thinking, oh, this is my greedy child. (laughs) They just want everything, or um, that kind of thing. So it is not necessarily an easy conversation, but I think, again, in all the research that we've done and listening to folks, we tend to blame, I think, the other generation oftentimes for not wanting to engage in the conversation. Kids say, my parents don't want to talk about it. Parents say, my kids are in denial. They don't want to talk about it. So I think part of it is just being open to the conversation, recognizing that mortality is part of life and being willing to listen. One of the strong arguments for estate planning and putting a will together is that it makes the intention of the person who passes away very clear, intention of where they want to leave their assets. What kinds of family arguments or squabbles typically arise when someone dies without a will? Again, I think part of it is that second guessing because you don't know what their intentions were. So there's all kinds of assumptions that are made or mom promised this or I know they really meant this, but you're taking it the other way. So any time that you can have things in writing that are really specific and clear and well spelled out, it removes a lot of the second guessing and assumptions that may come up. So when you don't have that, when you don't have things in writing and you have verbal promises or masking tape on the bottom of items or 
that kind of thing, or the kids are basically left to work it out, um, it leaves all of those questions remaining of what did they want or is this what they were intending and raises lots and lots of questions about what fair means, what's a fair process, who really should decide, who could decide, and what are the best rules to use for who should get what, whether it's money or possessions or other kinds of things. So the squabbles usually are not shocking to most family members because they may be sibling rivalries that have been going on since the age of six or uh, power and control issues or all kinds of um, long history of complex family relationships that will bubble to the top in times of inheritance. We're talking with Marlene Stum. She is a professor in the Department of Family Social Science at the University of Minnesota. Professor, we often think of financial assets as being the most important consideration when drafting a will. But what weight should we assign to items that could be of sentimental value to family and friends? A lot of weight. <laughs> uh, you're hitting on the, a topic that I love to talk about, so uh, I may go on and on in this one. But um, for actually the last 20 years, we've done some research and programming around a program we call Who Gets Grandma's Yellow Pie Plates? And it really um, has taken off and is used nationwide. And, and a lot of the reason is, I would claim, is that it's because a lot of people ignore the personal possessions and they think, oh, those are trivial, it won't really matter. But we have lots of evidence from family examples, from attorney examples, that it's often the personal possessions that end up in court cases and in causing disruption in family life more so than the money. And there's some reasons for that that we've learned about, again, what typically goes wrong, what helps make the process smoother, uh, and there's some resources to help people uh, through that process. But again, one of the complicated things is you can divide money equally, but you can't divide, for example, a Winnie the Pooh book that the three siblings all want equally. So what fair means gets to be really complicated. It's also, um, obviously, personal possessions have a lot of meaning to them, emotional meaning that money may or may not. And so it, it's more complicated. And who's to say that this doesn't mean more to me than it does to you? Lots of complex issues around kind of holding on and letting go of possessions as well as kind of the memories that go with those possessions. Uh, another reality is, that, as we know, that some individuals really don't understand that personal possessions are part of their estate and haven't really um, thought about how to make good decisions about those possessions and what plans they need in place and who can really make decisions about them. So pay attention to those what may seem trivial <laughs> personal possessions because in many families, uh, they really do matter and can make a difference. And Professor, you mentioned there are a slew of documents that go into the estate planning process, the will, a power of attorney document, medical directives, 401k beneficiary information, life insurance beneficiary information, where all of your assets are held, financial records, bank account numbers, brokerage account numbers, a lot of stuff that needs to be compiled. Where should all of these documents be kept and who should be notified when someone passes away? 
Well, the ideal situation is that we all have this magical folder, right? <laughs> it could be online. It could be uh, an internet based on your flash drive folder, or it could be pen and paper copy or both, where we have all of those things listed. What is it we have? Where could somebody find the different policies? Who would know where to find it? There's a range of tools that are out there to really help people develop good records and kind of pull their documents together. So obviously, that's the best scenario is it's all in one place. It's up to date, which takes work to do (laughs) to keep it up to date. And that somebody close to you, whether it's somebody that you're going to have manage your assets, for example, if you've decided who you want a personal executor who you want to carry out your will, uh, plans in your will, you would obviously want to tell that person. Uh, You would want to have had conversations with them. If you have a healthcare directive and you're naming a person to make decisions for you, you would obviously want that person to have a copy and have have that information. So a couple of bottom line um, things to think about is you want it to be safe. Obviously, you want, you don't, want to blast your information out there to everyone. You want to keep it in a protected and safe place. And you also want the right people to know where to find it in the event they need it. And they want need it to be accessible. So several decisions in that. Um, some people don't want others to know what's in their will or perhaps what's in certain documents. So it doesn't mean you have to share everything in the documents, but you should know, you should at least tell people Uh, here's my attorney's name, and they have a copy of my will, for example, or who to contact. So several layers of that, but safe, protected, but the right people need to know. We're talking with Marlene Stum. She's a professor in the Department of Family Social Science at the University of Minnesota. She wrote a paper for the U of M's extension program titled Estate Planning Matters, Lessons from the Unexpected Death of Prince. Well, let's assume that we've been diligent, we have all our documentation put together, people know where it is, where it's uh, readily accessible, we have information about where our assets are located, but how important is it to keep this information up to date? Obviously, your assets are not necessarily a static situation. You might acquire new assets. How often should you keep those documents updated? Whenever there are major changes, and I would say major changes in those assets, and what you consider to be major might be different than what I consider to be major. So what what are big asset changes, whether it's personal possessions or financial assets? Because then you probably have more or different decisions to make to add to those documents. Anytime there are major changes in your family structure, divorce, remarriage, stepkids, new grandkids, Anything related to family structure is probably going to impact what you want to say in those documents. Anytime you've had major relationship changes, meaning um, even informal relationship changes or, or difference that might affect who you pick as a decision maker, should, again, rethink, do I have the right healthcare agent? Do I have the right personal executor? So major changes in life, whether it's what you have, or who's involved are are key triggers. And for some people, they won't have many of those during a year, and other people may have quite a few. So uh, at least once a year, review things at a minimum, I would say. 
What happens to someone's assets when they die without a will? Well, I would say family members are often really surprised. (laughs) One of the things we found in the research we're doing on families and inheritance is that most people don't really have a clue what will happen to their assets. They think they know or they have some assumptions, but they really aren't aware that if you die without a will, which is called intestate, dying intestate, a big word simply means you, you don't have any wishes, written wishes in place. There are state inheritance laws that have a plan for you. So in most cases, uh, those state inheritance laws, there are differences across the 50 states, but in most cases they follow a, a very traditional kind of family lineage. If it would go, if you're married with kids, it often makes that assumption that it would go to spouse and then kids and then, and or if your parents are alive. So there's a, a lineage that wouldn't probably surprise a lot of people of who your assets go to. And that includes personal possessions and such. What, again, most people haven't really thought about, does that make sense for my situation? Is that what I want to have happen? And that's, again, I think a big lesson from uh, probably the latest famous case is that, whoa, I I may not have thought about that, um, of who really might be my heirs. And as we have more and more childless couples and just thinking about a range of single folks who who does inherit. So understanding those state laws is really important. And again, really thinking through, is that what you want to have happen? Most of us have documents and personal records, as well as important memories and photos stored on computer hard drives or in the cloud somewhere. Do we now need to make sure our loved ones can access our digital possessions when we die? We do, and there's a whole new, again, language and thinking about it's it's not just those possessions in front of us, but is what are often called the digital assets, the Facebook accounts, the, the photos. It's everything that you talked about that that's out there someplace that somebody may need to access or manage for us. So it is another another piece of what we have to think about these days. What resources do you recommend for someone who wants to learn more about the estate planning process? You know, there's a variety that I think are really, really helpful. I would start with one that is actually from the Minnesota Attorney General's office. It's called a probate and planning guide, and it, it's state-specific, so it covers Minnesota laws. If you, for example, want to see the state inheritance laws of who would inherit, it's got that in there. It describes the differences in a will and a trust. It leads you to different consequences, who can do what, and it's it's really very user-friendly. So that's a good place to start. It leads you to some other resources. If you like to learn more by listening, there's also the Minnesota State Bar Association. If you do a search for estate planning, you'll find some short and really informative videos to, again, what's in a will, what do I need to think about, just some basics that can get you started. A couple of resources from Extension that I would refer people to, again, one is a Minnesota Healthcare Directive Toolkit that's available in English and Spanish. It will walk you through how to complete a healthcare directive and help you do that. And we also have a workbook on who gets grandma's yellow pie plate that will help you really 
think about and navigate the transfer of personal possessions. So those are a few places to get started. We've been talking with Marlene Stum. She's a professor in the Department of Family Social Science at the University of Minnesota. She wrote a paper for the U of M's extension program titled Estate Planning Matters, Lessons from the Unexpected Death of Prince. Professor Stum, thanks so much for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota.